Hello and welcome to the July edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I'm going to be taking through the exciting papers and interesting facts and ideas that we've got in this month's journal. As always, we start with the primary survey idea for the journal and we have one of our associate editors or deputy editors do that for us. And this month it's Ian McConaughey, who's a paediatrician intensivist from London who's been with the journal for many years. So what's Ian picked out as particularly interesting this month? I think his first choice is really, really exciting. It's a paper and a commentary about how we change our practice depending on where we're working and where we're behaving and whether we're being observed. And there's a paper by uh, Hani Stokloser et al. Uh, it was a cross-sectional survey looking at clinical behaviours in American um, emergency physicians. And it's really interesting. And there's a there's a brilliant commentary on this, actually, from Jackie Hansen and Kirsten Walthall, who I know very well from Preston, not so far from where I am. And I'd, I'd strongly advise you to read both the paper and the commentary. But essentially, privacy, it, it's a key element in the process of undertaking a consultation with a patient. It allows due care and attention, pay to the patient's concerns and their condition, which is interesting because often when you walk into an emergency department, they have those unbelievably soundproof curtains between the cubicles. You know the ones where you can hear nothing on the other side? I am clearly being sarcastic and facetious. But privacy is actually really important. We, do, we deal with a lot of sensitive matters, and it is really important. So the survey um, by uh, Hanny Stoklosa um, was conducted at the 2015 American College of Emergency Physicians Scientific Assembly, big meeting, and they invited practicing ED physicians into a booth at the meeting. And the participants were asked to consider 22 items to determine if seeing patients in the corridor, what is sometimes known as hallway encounters, um, I call corridor medicine, had any impact on practice, including any delay or diagnostic failure. And if so, how did they then describe in greater detail about those problems that subsequently um, occurred? And within this survey, physicians were also asked if the presence of a companion altered the nature of the consultation with the patient, because I think that does. If you have somebody with you, you do things differently particularly medical students, as it happens. So 409 emergency physicians answered the survey. 78% of them said that they differed from their usual clerking when they were seeing patients in the hallway. I think that's probably fair. And 80% revealed that they did so if there was another person attending with the patient. Interesting. And the majority of emergency physicians changed their examination practice in the corridor. Well, nearly 90% of them, which I think is probably a good thing. Or when there was another person present, 77%. Increasing the occurrence of delays or diagnostic error. And actually, the odds ratio for that was really pretty high, actually. Um, big difference of um, errors and things, a 2.34 odds ratio change. These being more likely to happen if patients who had suicidal conditions or were victims of domestic violence or child abuse and in other forms of abuse, such as elderly abuse and substance abuse. In terms of the companions, well, companions can be helpful during a consultation, especially if the patient has significant difficulty with communication. For example, paediatric cases, when most often it's the parent or carers who have to speak on behalf of the non-verbal patient. Other patients with limited communication ability may also benefit from having another person giving relevant information. And the clinician has to judge the value of that information given by the companion and use it in the context of that wider clinical picture. So there may be times when additional information may be sought from other sources, especially if there are contradictory elements of the history from the examination that takes place. And those contradictions should give rise to concern about the patient and the circumstances. So this is a complex area around communication and behaviour and environment, really. So the use of the hallway as a clinical area, as the authors in the accompanying commentary highlight, um, is reflective of a broken system. And it's held by most clinicians to be unacceptable. I'd actually say it's held by pretty much every... Nobody wants to practice in the corridor or in a cupboard or, you know, in the ambulance bay, which is what we're having to increasingly do. 
Um, and it's an increasingly common occurrence in many countries around the world. And I think this paper is really important because it adds to the notion that such practice actually leads to poor patient outcomes, as well as being a cause of stress and concern to everyone who works in EDs. There's lots of other papers out there to show that overcrowding kills. Yes, it does. But the mechanism for that hasn't really been truly explored, I don't think. But this may be one of the issues. We just, we just can't do the job as well if we're trying to do it in a corridor. This should not be a surprise to anybody, but it does seem to be to some people who organise our systems. So read those two papers. Read the commentary and read the original um, paper. Very interesting, very useful to take back into your health economies and to try and make change happen. So what else have we got? There's a nice paper looking at the essential medicines for emergency care in Africa. Um, it describes a multi-step consensus process to produce an essential medical list, or what's known as the EML, for Africa. And that follows a review of international emergency lists and after a search of various different scientific literature around the place. So they've come to the conclusion that there's 213 medicines which are essential. And that includes 25 who are not actually in the World Health Organization list, which is interesting. It's why you need specialty-specific people to do these things. So... To help with implementation, the medications in the EML for Africa have been divided up into essential or desirable, and then they've further subdivided them according to which sort of facility they're going to be used in. This sort of work's really important. It's hugely important in setting current medication requirements for acute and emergency care in Africa, and potentially you could do the same thing in other places around the world. And it's done with a pragmatic consensus approach that fits to the needs of the local setting. And therefore, it's embedded in the local setting. This is people working in those environments who are choosing what is and isn't essential. I also think it's quite interesting that this is a way then of calibrating how well emergency care is running in the different um, areas of Africa. It's an incredibly diverse place. And I think setting a standard in this way is, is a really important thing to do. The next paper we wanted to have a look at was around the use of end-tidal carbon dioxide, end-tidal CO2 if you like, output in cardiopulmonary out-of-hospital resuscitation, looking at manual versus mechanical. And this is a case series. Um, so case series looked at the differences in the quality measures of CPR. And in order to do that, they looked at end-tidal CO2 levels between different modes of chest compression, because we think that the end-tidal CO2 is a good marker of how good your, your compressions are. So the end-tidal CO2 level indicates if the forces being delivered by hand or by machine are sufficient to maintain pulmonary circulation, allowing gaseous exchange to occur, with level being measured during the expiratory phase, then this sort of system can do that assessment. But there is concern about entitled CO2 levels of quality measure, and ILCOR, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation in the Consensus on Science and Treatment Recommendations in 2015, um, suggested that certain levels might assist with predicting the return of spontaneous circulation. But the Advanced Life Support Task Force wrote it's not really known about the applicability of this measure across all patients as there's, there's such a, a large range of causes of cardiac arrest and some of those can in fact affect your CO2 levels, so something like a pulmonary embolism, for example. So given those caveats, the patients that had manual and then mechanical CPR for two minutes in that order um, basically found that the result was that the mechanical method was not superior to the manual method. I find that quite interesting. And... Um, it fits with some of the randomised control trials of mechanical versus manual, which haven't really shown a survival benefit, so maybe this is a reason. In reality, though, there are other reasons why you use a mechanical system, not just the patient outcome. It's actually quite good for the staff, and it allows you to do other things as well and do a higher level of advanced life support, if you like. So have a look at that. I know entitled CO2 is a little bit controversial, but we're using it all the time. Mechanical CPR is controversial, but... 
this kind of adds to the debate about whether or not it's better or not or it's worse. It's certainly not worse by the looks of things, and it could be potentially slightly better for your stuff. So finally, the one that um, Ian's picked out is a study on chest pain in the ED, looking at commonly used scores um, together with single troponin tests in predicting major cardiac adverse events. And this is an area where uh, we've had a lot of interest here in Manchester for a long period of time. Um, we obviously developed, well, we, my friend Rick Body, Professor Rick Body, developed the TMAX score. Now, that's not in this one, which is a bit of a shame, but in um, this study um, published in the Journal this month, the authors have looked at the Heart score, the Timmy score, and the Gray score, very well known internationally recognized scores, using that in combination with a single contemporary cardiac troponin at the presentation of a patient with chest pain and looking to see whether that can determine MACE, major adverse cardiac events, at 30 days. So in this study, best scoring system with a value of greater than three was the heart score and that had a sensitivity of picking stuff of, of over 99% which is excellent and the, the negative predictive values are excellent too. Caveats though, mm, difficult, um, it's only a single site, it's an observational study that looked on a fairly discrete population attending a tertiary hospital so maybe not applicable to everywhere. Um, but Again, interesting. I think there's increasingly evidence that the way forward is with chest pains to, to risk stratify them. And then particularly when you get to these lower levels of risk, which you can do through a variety of different methods, have a conversation with the patient and decide what they want to do. Because of note, actually, 1.89% of the patients in this cohort did develop major uh, cardiac events at 30 days, um, which is interesting and might reflect their population. But, you know, we're not talking about a condition which is benign. We need to be sure about these sort of things. So those are the ones that um, Ian's picked out. There's quite a bunch of other stuff in there as well. There's more on chest pain. And there's some stuff on paediatric cardiac arrest, a very rare but very stressful area, looking to establish a consensus about how we do that, particularly paediatric traumatic cardiac arrest, um, with, a, with a great set of authors actually on that. That's definitely worth a read. There's a review of hemostatic dressings for trauma. Again, an area which is a little bit controversial, but definitely worth reading. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there as well. So get out the journal, go and have a read of it. Look at it online, answer on Facebook, contact us on Twitter, listen to the podcast, share it, and we will see you in August. Have a lovely summer. Music.